Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality, helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and, and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in, in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing. They wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to today's episode of Climbing Consulting. This week, I am joined by Heather Townsend, award-winning author and expert on what it takes to make partner in a professional services firm. Heather first came on my radar after former guest Keith Burgess from IBM sung her praises and shared how influential her work had been on his training with IBM consultants. With a review like that, I knew I had to get her on this show, and I'm very pleased she said yes. As you know, this podcast is all about helping you climb in consulting. And who better to help you with that than someone who spends their days advising consultants on how to do just that, how they can reach partner. Making partner, it can often seem like a dark art, and it's something that many people chase for years. And unfortunately for some, it's something that they never reach. And that's why I really wanted to get Heather on this show. In her latest book, Poised for Partnership, she outlines a holistic 12-step approach that gives you the secrets you need to succeed. And in this episode, we dive into some of those key areas for you to think about. 
we talk about what those 12 steps are and why you need to be really deliberate in the order in which you approach them if you want to succeed. We talk about partner business cases, what it is that many people get wrong, and what you should be thinking about and doing in the run-up to the promotion process to give you the best chance of success. And for anyone running a consulting firm, running a boutique, we also talk about what you should be thinking about when developing your partner progression process and how to avoid the biggest mistake that many boutiques make when it comes to partner promotion. Whether you are on the cusp of partnership or you're earlier in your career and you want to lay those foundations for success, Heather shares so many great insights, tips and advice in this one. And I know you are going to get so much from what she has to say in this interview. So with the intro over, all that's left to say is please sit back, relax and enjoy today's conversation with Heather Townsend. Heather, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Nick. I feel very honoured to be a guest. Well, I think it, the honour is all mine because having heard so much about you from a former guest, Keith Burgess, I had to get you on the show. And when he kindly introduced us and you kindly said yes, I was very excited about this. So thank you very much for coming on. For those who may not have listened to the Keith episode, may not be familiar with yourself or your work, could you, to kick us off, give a background on who you are and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, of course. Well, I could start when my mother met my father and looked over, but we won't go back that far. So um, I joined BDO, uh, a top five accounting firm at the time, now a top five accounting firm, actually becoming more of a, a, you know, in the accounting firms that are these big multidisciplinary firms, a big four light. Um, I joined them in 2004 in learning and development. And you could say that was the point that I became really fascinated about what it takes to make partner. You could say if I was feeling really geeky, that's where you know, a large part of my life's work began. So I could see these great accountants. I could see these great tax advisors who are all brilliant technicians, are really good at their job, but they weren't making past senior manager director. And me being me wanted to find out why. You know, what was the secret sauce, this key ingredients to move from a senior fee earner to a partner? And you see that in the consultancy world. Brilliant project delivery people, brilliant program directors, brilliant at maybe their little bit of transformation, but they never make it to partner. So the credit crunch hit. In 2009, I was part of that casualties. You know, 10% of the firm were let go at the time. Half my team went and I set up on my own. Apart from the first day of me swearing a lot, actually, it was the best thing that happened to me. You know, it allowed me to really follow my passion. And for those consultants that are listening and thinking, oh, I need a niche, I need to be somebody, follow your passion is one of the best tips I could could give you. So sounds a bit corny, but people were saying to me when I went out on my own, how are you going to go to market? How are you going to get in work? And I said, I'm going to good, do a good job, Nick, and then work's going to come to me. How naive was I? Anyway, so what happened was fairly early on, you know, within a month of being official at a limited company, I went along to this talk at a networking event that said, introduction to social networking, as it was called then. So that's 2009. And this person said, you can win lots of work by using Twitter and blogging. And I thought, well, I might as well give it a go. That led to me becoming what was known at the time of one of the Twitterati. You know, get this, Nick, you are in the presence of greatness for a long, long time. I was the top, most influential, wait for it, tweeter in Bedfordshire. Are you, are you ready? That is, for, that is that, a claim to fame, Heather. That is that a is... claim to fame. But actually, my blogging 
And, you know, one of my core key skills has always been able to take the really complex and boil it down into simple principles, simple steps that people could understand. That way of going, well, actually, this is how you use social media. At the time, we had the creatives, the marketing people. Of course, Nick, I'm not talking about you, but they were using social media and having a party. You know, it wasn't about winning work. It was about be creative. And where's the crayons, darling? You know, the the dyed in the wall face to face networks are going, it's not going to catch on, mate. It's just not going to catch on. We need to see whites of the eyes to do big deals. And I was the first one that really knit this both sides together. And I said it wasn't or, it was and, and it was using the right tool for that job, which then led to me being asked, you know, I know it sounds really as if I was approached. I didn't I didn't go and say, go to the Financial Times. Uh, they approached me based on my abilities and what I was doing and said, will you write the book, The Financial Times Guide to Business Networking? And I thought for a nanosecond, because I had put in that it was going to be called Joined Up Networking, but that was neither here nor there. For a nanosecond, I, I thought, no. And then I was just like, oh, one of the biggest business brands wants me to write a book for them. Of course I will. So that really shifted my work from freelancer, associate, jobbing trainer to an expert in referral generation for professionals. So consultants, lawyers, accountants. Now, I'd always wanted to write a book. It just happens it wasn't that book. And the book, I know, I know this sounds like I, I'm all over the place. And yeah, I probably was at the time. But, you know, I'd always wanted to write the book, How to Make Partners Still Have a Life. I really wanted to do that body of work and dig deep. Effectively, uh, the Financial Times Guide to Business Networking needed to be reprinted within three months of it, it launching. That is unheard of for a Financial Times Guide. So I was taken out for lunch by the senior commissioning editor. You know, this is this. What are you going to do next? This led to me getting very quickly commissioned to write the book How to Make Partners to Have a Life. And that book then enabled me to go much deeper than just be seen as this business development expert and establish myself as a global expert in what it takes to make partner in a professional services firm. Now, I was writing this with an old manager of mine, Joe Larby, a lot of respect for Joe, but it felt really hard at the time. Now, don't get me wrong, it was a 78,000 word book. We were writing it together. Joe had a period of serious ill health. You know, there was a whole lot of stuff going on around there. and But I couldn't understand why it was hard. And what I'd realised was I'd spent two, three years growing a brand as a referral generation expert to write a book on career progression. And if you've been in any professional services firm, you know that marketing does not talk to learning and development because marketing is always trying to nick learning and development's budget and learning and development think that marketing is flaky. I didn't say that, did that. We're not recording, are we? So and I suddenly realized I spent how long establishing my brand just to kind of move it out of there. And so this led me to writing The Go-To Expert, which is where I brought it back together again, which where I kind of said, right, okay, if you are an accidental business developer, like most consultants are, because they're not taught how to win business, they're taught to be a great consultant. You know, being able to put in a two-by-two box matrix with the best of them isn't going to help you win work. And so I wrote, basically, for people that sell their time for money, The Idiot's Guide for How You Win Your Own Business, How Do You Establish Yourself as a Brand. So that led to The Go-To Expert. And, you know, all was going well, but people still weren't buying for me for this how to make partner message. And I'm like, why? And then suddenly this American consultant rang me up, paid severely over the odds what I was normally charging. I, I was obviously having a good week that week. And the penny clicked. People wanted help in that last three years. How do I go from senior fee earner to partner? Not do I have a life, not how do I go from manager to senior manager. It's how do I go from director, 
leading consultant, managing consultant to partner. And that basically led to me really focusing down on that three-year transition, that naught to three years from going from I can service other people's clients to I can build up my own portfolio, my own book of business, my own business within a business and make partner. I've since extended it by another two years because sadly, my audience grows up, Nick. And they're like, Heather, we're now a junior partner helper. So I, I work with people in the first two years. But that led to the book, my fourth book, Poise for Partnership, which is where I really went deep in how do you go from that senior fee to a partner? How do you build that personal case, that business case? What does it look like? And from that, that you know, since this point of writing this book, you know, that's that's what I spend 50% of my life doing. I am seen as the global expert. I'd like to say there's loads of people vying for it, but I'm the only idiot who is willing to be that niche on that particular career transition. Well, I think a fantastic intro, Heather, and, and I can already tell there's there's far more to talk about than I think we're ever going to have time in, in two hours because I didn't know the uh, the background and I think a great case study actually for actually what we talk to clients about, like you say, sort of marketing, social networking, and actually how you use, like you said, Twitter back then was was very cutting edge. That that platform's grown. Likewise, LinkedIn has really come of age and you know we may talk about that later. There was no offense caused. I, I sadly share your perception of how our industry views marketing. And there are still lots of people who don't see the power of it. I do think a case study of how you get in the financial times through social media is something a lot of listeners will be interested in because there's there's many people spending vast sums of PR money to try and do the same and they've not had the success you had. So we'll definitely talk about that if we have time. But your point there and, and your latest book, Poise for Partnership, when we talked about it ahead of this conversation, it was the thing that really made me excited for for our chat because I think what you've hit on is a really pivotal point for for anyone listening and anyone in the industry because like you say you start as a as a consultant you're bright you're you're capable you learn all of these matrices and tools and frameworks and you get really good at that but actually there is that middle period in the career or that kind of no man's land between senior manager and partner where some people make it some don't and it it can seem like a dark art or a black box you know some people are ordained or or blessed with skills some aren't and I always think it it can be really hard for those who haven't continued that trajectory to figure out why. And I think that's what I'd love to dig into with yourself because you're helping people do this. So maybe we start there. And as I say, we, we're going to have too much for today, Heather. So we'll see how much we can cover. But I know in your book, you have identified 12 areas that, that people need to think about and, and almost sort of audit themselves on in, in that preparation phase. So why don't we start there and we can dive into some of the ones that you find are sort of either the most difficult or most illuminating for people. But do you want to share what those initial 12 areas are? Yeah. And I think before I go into the 12 areas, I'm just going to talk about how we came up with those 12. Because we were like, right, you need to be doing some business development. You need to be thinking like a partner. You know, I used to do this keynote, the 10 lessons to make partner. And and we used to have this partner track plan that used to have seven tabs and all of this sort of stuff. And you know what? It was as complicated as if a really good consultant had got their hands on it. And so people were coming to us and going, Heather, it's just, I'm overwhelmed. And so we codified it. We're like, okay, how do we codify this so that we can take people from a this to a this and almost put in that step-by-step process? And that's how those 12 key indicators came about. I looked at the hundreds of people I'd helped over I hate to say this, 10 plus years, because that ages me, doesn't it? It really does age me. We're not going there. I started at the age of 16, as far as your listeners are concerned. And so we actually sat down and went, and I took out the 10 lessons and I 
looked at everyone I'd worked with. I'd looked at what made the difference. I listened into how did I instinctively know when someone was going to make it through the process? And we came up with these 12 key indicators. And I'm going to give you them in order. So anybody listening, get your pencil out and write them down in order because the order is important. Why is the order important? Because if you haven't got the first one sussed, you ain't going to get the second or the third one sussed. A lot of people jump straight in and go, I've got to win business, Nick, or I've got to have a business case. Let's write one this weekend. You know, if you haven't the first one sussed, you'll never have the time. It won't be consistent. It won't be sustainable. So we start with mindset. Am I acting and thinking like a partner? Now, if anybody's listening and going, well, partner's not my next role. It's going to be managing consultant. It's the same, actually, for that. This is about the foundation. We talk about the first five key indicators, the foundation for progressing your career. You know, are you acting and thinking like the role you want to become? But for partner, it's such a significant transition. And we're going to dig into that a bit later. Then direction. And we're going to dig into this a bit later. But do you actually want to make partner? And do you want to make it in that firm? You know, we're not going to tell Nick if someone goes, I want to make partner, but definitely not here. But actually, We've often found that those people that never quite, well, they ghost me after they talk to me about coaching, normally find that they move firm two years later because they weren't in the right firm. And so something's often holding them back. And until you've got stuff aligned, then it's like a plan. I know it's boring. I know, you know, surely I should have a three by three matrix for this. Something, you know, that's a proper model for this. No, a plan. Have you got a plan? The one big focus. What are you focusing on for the next 90 days that's going to push you forward? Without a plan, everything's an intention, everything's a wish list, and then the client calls and nothing happens. Support team, you cannot do this alone. You know, people talk, see these consultants and think, wow, they're a lone wolf. No, you cannot do this alone. You know, in law, actually, you can maybe get to partner on a loan, but you'll fall over if you want to go up the ranks of partnership. But very much in a consultancy, consultants go to market together, they generally earn their money by follow-on work from a big piece of work. It's follow-on work. You've got to do this collaboratively. You can't do it alone. So we talk about your sponsoring partner, your mentor, your external coach, friends inside and outside of work, a supportive home environment, all of this sort of stuff. Who is that team? It's a marathon, not a sprint. Who is that team around you? Delegation is two angles. It's people go, of course I can delegate. Yeah, of course you could delegate. But have you built your preferred crew to delegate to. You know, I'm particularly thinking of those people that have got a matrix organisation. They don't necessarily have a defined three people that they always work with, that there's bench strength. Have you actually built your preferred crew that you can feel safe to delegate with? There's a whole lot around delegation and mindset. So those are the first five. If you haven't got those, you will never create the time to win work, your own work, and then to build a business case off that. So the next bit is, can you win work? The next three, go to expert. Do you have a strong enough personal brand that work will come directly to you rather than your partner? Very simple. Do you have that profile and reputation in the marketplace that work will come to you? Referral network. Do you have enough connections internally in the firm? You know, most of the consultants listening to this, particularly if they're in, uh, even if actually they're in a, in a what, what we would call a boutique firm, that internal firm marketplace will still be the most important source of work. Who is the referral network? I'm working with this absolutely amazing partner from a small boutique practice. And he, he literally said, yeah, I built the spreadsheet. It's got drop down lists and everything. And all of his contacts rated next steps. He filters it. So every day he sees who he needs to make contact with that day. And I'm just like, 
just show that to your partners. That's your business. No, look, I'd be facetious, but, you know, that needs to be around your firm. But, you know, apply your own skills. And then the next one people might not think about is business development and habit. If you've got what it means to be a partner, you will see that business development is your day job. But most consultants are in love with their specialist skill set. And actually, they want to do client work. It's what you've been paid for. It's what you've been managed on. And this business development habit is, are you doing a bit of business development each day? Now, I'm then going to look at what I would call the final bit. And this bit, let's be honest, is quite pertinent to the partner making partner. Everything else is absolutely spot on if you want to go to manager, senior manager, leading consultant, principal, whatever title your your firm has put to show that you're very senior and good at what you do. We looked at it and we realised that there are two aspects of making partner. There's the emotional aspect and then there's the rational aspect. Let's start with the rational aspect, which is, can you demonstrate the requirements of partners in your firm? You know, that's what your competency framework says. And that's what we would, in the personal indicator, call your personal case. But actually, there's another part of your personal case. It's the emotional case. You could be the most amazing consultant. You could be brilliant at winning work. You could be billing the most, building up stuff. But if your partners don't like you, if you are countercultural to how your partners work, it's, as that phrase goes, turkeys do not vote for Christmas. Partners do not bring somebody who's going to ruffle feathers into their partnership. So that's why we had to bring it out as, a, as an extra key indicator. It's that emotional. Your partners want to be able to look at you and know at a gut level feeling that you will be fighting with them in the trenches when the chips are down, that you won't be going, I'm sodding off to PA consulting. You will be there and you'll be fighting with them. And, you know, you, you can meet all the standards, but you have to remember that becoming a partner is you're becoming a business partner. If there are 200 partners in your firm, they are asking you to be their business partner. That means there's got to be trust. There's got to be an emotional connection. And then the business case is about can you demonstrate the commercial benefit to your partners of making up to partner? Because I'm telling you now, most partnerships would prefer you to stay at principal or senior manager, or leading consultant, or whatever. They don't want to share equity. They want to, don't want to share the really juicy rewards. Why would you want to do that? That's stupid. You know, so you really have to demonstrate that commercial imperative. And then finally, the partnership admissions process. Now, you might go, but I'm in a tiny firm, Nick. It doesn't matter how big or small your firm is, there will be a process. It might be very informal, or it might be if you're in one of the big consulting firms, maybe one of what I would call the big four, you might know though, but the PWCs, the KPMGs, they'll be in a very established process. And when you understand that there's a very established process, whether formal or informal, you can then put the right bits in place, such as building your profile, building the relationships, making sure that pitch works. You know, I've worked with people that are brilliant on paper, but haven't practiced their partnership pitch, and then they lose it on the partnership panel. So that's the list of 12 indicators for you, how they came about. Fantastic. Well, I was going to ask about how they came about. So thank you for answering that up front. And I think a really good overview. And I, I really, I think your point around actually the ordering of them being very deliberate and important is a critical point, because I think particularly regardless of consulting, but in today's world, it's so easy to jump to the quick fix or the thing you hear about. And like you say, BD, I think, is is often the thing we hear. But actually, I think that methodical approach will be really useful for our listeners. We don't have time to, nor do I want to steal the book revenue by going into every one of them. But I think there's some fascinating, well, just hearing what you're saying there, and actually, Heather, 
my mind works chronologically. So I do want to come to the final bit because I think that will be really interesting. But chronologically, let's start at the beginning because you said that is the most important one. And actually, you can tell me if these can be sort of combined, but that mindset and direction sounds fascinating because I, you know, I think back to when I was a consultant and I remember hearing so many senior managers, directors say things like, oh, I'm a great delivery person. I'm, I'm not a salesperson. You know, I'm a delivery expert. And that mindset shift, I imagine, is that first point of going from, you know, you made the comment earlier, that sort of, I can do two by twos to I can go out and win work. So maybe we could just start there and and understand sort of what are the challenges when you're working with consultants? What is that mindset challenge you find them having? and, And how do you advise people to kind of make that shift? Actually, it's really important that we split mindset and direction up. Because you you could have the direction that in five years' time, Nick, I'm going to be a partner and it's going to be in this firm and you know your direction. But actually, if you're not going to mindset, it's not going to help. So I am going to split up and go into detail. So, Nick, I'm now going to apologise to any listener that's hungry. And I always tell this to people to help them really get what it is. So imagine that the partners in your consultancy firm have spent all year baking this amazing chocolate cake. It's three-tiered, Nick. Oh, the best, the best, Heather, the best. Absolutely. It's got the finest chocolate buttercream on it because somebody's been there. They've done, you know, that drip look, you know, that shards of chocolate sticking You're speaking my language here. Keep going. Your partners have spent the whole year baking that cake. They've decided and they put out responsibilities. Who's on icing duty? Who's, you know, that core cash cow that's doing the eggs, the butter, the chocolate into the main sponge? They've done all of that. They spent the whole year working out exactly how much of that piece of cake each of them deserves by how much effort they put in. You would never go to them as an outsider and say, oh, give us a piece of cake, would you? But this is what most people do when they are thinking about making partner. They're doing the equivalent of going to their partners and saying, oi, give us a piece of cake. I've been with you five years, three years. I've hit every billable target. I deserve a piece of cake doesn't work like that. People forget that making partner is not another promotion. Fundamentally, this is where on the day that you make partner, now I know there's a few consultancies that are limited companies, so it's slightly different. But on the day that you make partner, you'll resign from the partnership, you'll get a P45, you'll become self-employed, and you'll have the privilege of buying into a slice of the firm. You, in effect, become a business owner. And there are a lot of mindset shifts that need to take place from senior fee earner to actually earning a slice of that cake as a business owner. And when I I talk to people about that chocolate cake, the penny drops. You've got to think of yourself as a business owner. And so when you listen to a lot of people that are at that senior level, you know they're not ready for partnership because they tend to talk about I a lot. It's my clients. It's I'm going to do this. And it's very short term. When you listen to those that are ready for partner, they're talking about we. They realise it's collegiate. They're not just talking about my clients. They're realising it's the clients of the firm. They're seeing a far more medium long-term picture. Now, consultants are better than lawyers about seeing a medium long-term picture. After Most consultants are put in to do six, 12, 18-month projects. But in all honesty, most people who are not ready for it are thinking very much here now, I need to hit my billing targets all about me. Whereas we know when they're ready for partnership, they're thinking about we They're not talking about a collection of clients. They're talking about their practice, their business. So why is mindset so important? Well, a lot of training that's done is at the very tactical element. But if you haven't got the mindset right, 
any training done at the tactical element is just a sticking plaster because your mindset. So we, when I say mindset, let's let's go into that. Your beliefs, how you see your identity, that drives, uh, you know, your values. Those things drive what you focus on. What you focus on drives your behaviours and activities. That then drives the results and outcome you get. So if you don't have that right mindset at the start, it's not going to be there. So what are some of the other mindset shifts? So I'll often hear people going, well, I've, I've been, you know, I've been this firm however many long, I'm expecting the next bit of development to be given to me. You know, if you're truly a self-starter, entrepreneurial, because that's what you are as a business owner, you will be driving your own training and development. You'll be pushing your own development forward. You'll be coming up with the initiative. Just think about it. Your partners don't want a fellow partner to sit there and say, well, what do I do now? You know, they want someone that's got get up and go, that's going, actually, I can notice a problem. Here's my thoughts how to fix it. What do you think about that? Rather than, oh, you mean to say there's a problem and we need to fix it? Oh, how do I do that? You know, it, it's you've got to think about it in those sorts of terms. So we talked about the we versus I, we talk about the collection. But the other thing is, if you think about what most consultants, they have been measured on their ability to get off the bench. You know, you think about it. You remember your career as a consultant. The first week on the bench was quite nice. The second week got worrying. If you were there for four weeks, you started looking around for another job, didn't you? Because you're being managed on your billable time. And so a lot of people will always protect their billable time first and foremost. They'll always hit their targets first. And in fact, they'll often overhit their targets because that's what a good consultant does, doesn't it? They overhit their targets. Well, the problem is if you overhit your billable targets, you can't do the other aspects that is needed to grow a practice. Business development comes haphazard. You can't build up that preferred crew gang that you'll get onto your projects behind you. As a result, you then get stuck being this brilliant technician who never quite establishes their brand, who never quite gets out into the marketplace, who's never consistent enough with it, who always has an intention to push their career forward, but six months goes past. This is why that mindset and changing the language, changing your identity is actually the first steps. Because if you realise that your day job is business development, managing people, developing people and client delivery, it's so much easier then if you, all you're thinking about is client delivery. Firstly, I love the example because I am a big fan of chocolate cake. So <laughs> you, know, you, you had me sold there. And there is, I think, something in that. And we'll come on to direction shortly because I, implicit in what you've highlighted, and I think sometimes does get lost, is, is exactly that point is you are moving from employee to business owner. And sometimes that in the firm doesn't feel like a big shift. But like you said, that mindset of I'm owning a business. And and I guess, and and this might be a direction point so so pause me if it is but there's probably quite a fundamental question of do I want that because it's very often you know anyone listening to this show understands that partners get paid well they get a decent chunk of the chocolate cake you know the the directors the lead consultants might get a smaller strawberry sponge or something not as good and that's what we focus on but actually to your point it's do you want the everything that comes with that cake and I'm interested and you tell me if this is more of a mindset or direction thing but is that something you encourage people to think about as well in terms of obviously it's we, but also it's a, is this really, do I want to be an entrepreneur? Do I want the risk that comes with that business? Yeah, and, I, and absolutely. Because if your heart's not in it, you're never going to really commit to it. And in my in my first book, we've got the foreword by, uh, well, not my first book, but my second book, but the first book really on this topic of how to make partners still have a life. We've got the foreword by Charles E. Green. People will know him of trusted advisor fame uh, to his friends and 
you know, me, Charlie, feels good. He put in the foreword, there is something worse, and I'm paraphrasing slightly, there's something worse than not making partner. It's making partner and hating it. And this is the whole point, is if you don't love it, if you're not going to commit to it, you're going to be average at best. But the problem is, if you think about it, people that go into consultancy are naturally ambitious, bright and talented. You know, idiots, those that aren't the sharpest tool in the box, don't make it, do they? They they get quickly shuffled off to industry with a smile and everybody turns around and goes, how did they get through our recruitment processes? But, you know, you laugh about it, but it's true, isn't it? So we've got these really bright, ambitious people. So there becomes this culture of, well, why don't you want to make partner? You're good. You know, partner is seen as the ultimate accolade. It's seen as the marketplace has gone, Nick, you've made it. This badge of your good at what you do. You've got to that ultimate thing. You know, we we talk about it when people walk through the doors of their office building on the day they make partner, they walk a little bit taller. Their head is held a little bit higher. There becomes a innate amount of confidence with it. And, you know, juniors talk about, you know, how long for you to make partner? Where do you go for it? You know, it becomes this mythical thing that if you don't want it, you've got to be stupid. You know, literally stupid as in, a you know, not as not as bright, but why wouldn't you want to be a partner in the McKinsey's, the PAs, the Boston Consulting, the but even the small mid tier stuff, you know? Yeah, if you go and be a director, a consultant for EY, you know, you're going to get paid over two hundred grand. But as a partner, oh, you know, it's not quite add another zero on it if you're a small, but but you know, there's a there's a fairly serious lot of wonga going to you if the firm actually delivers that year. And so people go, well, why wouldn't you want to be seen as the best? Why wouldn't you want this level of reward? What they don't see is the pressure that comes with it. What they don't see is the risk that comes with it. You know, the pressure is you're building, you know, as a junior consultant, you think you're stressed. Now, when you look back and you think, oh, you had it easy just then. And suddenly you think about the pressure that comes with being a partner in a firm. Let's just go back to the heady days of March 2020. Everybody now realised that that was the start of the pandemic. And most of the professional services firms and consultancy firms, partners, sat together in a room, thought, how much cash have we got? What's happening to our big projects? As partners, we will agree not to take any money out of the business, i.e. they didn't pay themselves for three to six months in order to make sure that we can pay the key wages. They took decisions to follow people, to put people on four-day working weeks, and most of the good consultancies did not waste a good crisis, and they actually cut some headcount. Could you have done that? Could you have had that conversation with someone? Maybe you've been a really good mate with and said, sorry, that's just how it is. You know, there comes a huge amount of pressure. There's expectations on you. You have to be a role model. And so few people actually ask them, is this going to make me happy? You know, if you don't like doing business development, if you don't like making collegiate decisions, if you don't really want to toe the party line fully, Is partnership right for you? And is it right for you in this firm? And, you know, we always say to people that you've got to start with your vision, values and purpose. You're kind of what makes up your identity. When we say purpose, you might think of it as your why. You know, my purpose very much has been about overcome challenges. It's the constant theme of my life. As 20 plus years in learning and development, it should be about enabling others and leaving a legacy. But it's always been about a challenge, but it is actually becoming more now because I think I'm getting older, Nick. How did that happen? It's becoming, you know, more about leaving that legacy, supporting others to fulfill their potential. And yeah, that that's ultimately what I do in my business. But anyway, I digress. But, you know, when you go to your vision, values and purpose, do you see yourself 
doing these big pitches? Do you see that as being part of your day job and enjoying it? You know, because that is will become your day job. Do you see yourself, you know, having a certain part of your diary mapped out for appraisals, one-to-ones, mentoring? If it isn't, is this right for you? Do you want to be, do you want that pressure of being responsible for the health and wealth of your firm? And you might go, yeah, yeah, I want this, but not here. You know, and that's about thinking about, do you really fit in your firm? I want to come on to that. I'm conscious. I, I, I think you've answered the first, that you, you actually answered what I was going to ask around how people can think about this for themselves. And I guess just to, because I always like to dig in probably to more level, a more level of detail than some people listening will, will be concerned about. But for some people who, you know, what you've just said has really resonated, they're probably thinking, right, Heather, I want to go and spend this weekend thinking, I think I know my vision values, my, my goal, et cetera. But are there then, you know, the next level down, are there any questions on top of that that they can sort of really get to the heart of this? Or do you find that that sort of early activity, really getting clear on what that kind of direction is, will answer some of those those next order questions? If it does, we can move on. If not, I'd love to know what some of those next order questions you tend to ask people to ask themselves about whether that partnership route is right for them. Then I do want to come on to your next point around firms. Yeah, I remember to stop there. You know, I'm all my best behaviour. So I think people kind of go vision and, and they instantly think, right, what's my consultancy tool for doing vision? And you know what? You know, one of the best things you could do is take yourself out of the hurly-burly for a couple of days and just be. And I know that sounds a bit woohoo when I'm sitting on my Buddhist mat and, and starting to meditate and all of this sort of stuff. But actually, there's so many expectations on us. And most people have got responsibilities at the t- you know, when they really start thinking about partnership, whether that's a mortgage to pay, whether that's a young family, whether that's a husband, wife, spouse, significant other. You know, it might even be unlucky and aged parents starting to do that. And uh, we've got so many people's got expectations on us. So the first thing I do is you've got to get clear about what is right for you. What is absolutely right for you? So there's many tools. So, uh, you know, we outline in the book, How to Make Partners to Have a Life. We talk about thinking about the roles that you plan in your life. So for me, mother is very important. As somebody just started dating my teenage daughter, I also got big, bad, scary parent in my role description. And I think that's really important. And it's like, Rose, next time you bring him over, he is having food with us so I could talk to him, look him in the whites of the eye and try not embarrass him too much. But, you know, that is part of my vision. You know, I don't think my son, who's nearly 17, is going to bring anyone home for that very reason. But, you know, it's for me, part of my roles is I see myself as a fit active person who's you know I like to see myself as slim the fact that there's an extra stone suddenly appeared is neither here nor there and that will be going in the next six months but you know what are these roles what are these things that you naturally take on that identity so let's almost give the contrast a lot of people you know family first absolutely family absolutely first but then you have to look at the life of the consultant Now, since the pandemic, and there's far more flexibility to work anywhere rather than just at the office or the client's office, you know, the pandemic's been a blessing for many consultants. There's a chance to work from home without anybody going, are you working from home or are you working? You know, that whole, and and you know what, I know anybody listening to this, you are billing, you know, it's not a 40 hour week. That's a light week. You know, I know for most of you that your time is not your own from 6 a.m. Monday morning to 6 p.m. Friday. But you've got to look at it. If your roles is being an attentive, hands-on parent, how does that match? 
And it might be that actually you need to think, well, actually for a bit, I'm going to be a jobbing consultant who does a damn good job, but I'm not going to push ahead with my partnership ambitions until my family is turning around to me and saying, I need food in the fridge and I need you to drive me there, but otherwise just leave me alone. That's that's life with teenagers, basically. You know, you're far too young, Nick, to sort of have that conversation. No, we, we, but... We're at the other end. Our, our son is coming up to one. So we've, we've got the other end of, uh, yeah, uh, but please carry on. Yeah. So you, you've got to look at those, that, you know, the roles you want to play, the milestones you want in that roles. You know, one of my milestones is to be a runner again. Three years of injury is kind of circumventing that. But, you know, I will beat my last run time, which was 1st of January 2020. And that will be I will beat that and I will go sub 27 minutes. However, at the moment, I haven't been allowed to run for three years. But that's by the by. But in my head, there are milestones within that. So, you know, think about your work goals. Think about your roles inside and outside of work. You know, some of the people listening may have a very strong religious faith. You know, if you're going to do the Friday prayers, if you're going to fully, you know, observe all the rules and the rituals around the Sabbath, you know, how does that match in? Is that possible in your firm you're in? So that's a really important thing. I also get people to encourage them to look at their values. And people go, of course, I know my values. And then they trot off the normal stuff, integrity, family orientated. And you know what? Forget what you think you need to say. Go to the internet download one of those sheets that's got about 50 words to 80 words of types of values and go through and kind of circle the ones that really resonate and those that you see as part of that guiding principle, that guiding rule of how you live your life. You're going to end up with about 30. And then what I want you to do is go, right, okay, you're not allowed 30. You've got to whittle that down to 15. Then you've got to whittle that down to eight. Then you've got to whittle that down to ideally five and prioritise which are the ones you really can't live without. And then look at those and go, how have those informed the decisions you've taken? The other thing about values is you often realise their existence when you suddenly get really annoyed about something for no reason. So my sister-in-law was in a wheelchair. She's not anymore, but she was in a wheelchair. Also, I'd, I'd just come out of the time when I had push chairs and kids in this area. And I went into our local post office. And if it's like most local post offices, thin aisles stacked full of floor-based merchandising that's impossible to get round unless you're an able-bodied person. And I was fuming having left that shop. And I'm like, get a grip, Heather. This is a shop. You can't influence this. Get a grip. And I suddenly realised there was a value that I hadn't realised that was really important, which was about inclusivity. You know, and that's why I, I stood up and called out the show organisers of a the major trade show exhibition in the accountancy world and said, why have you got two all-male panels, one of which is promoting itself as who to trust about what's happening in the future? I lost a lot of key influence friends by making a stand, but that value was so important to me at that time. And, and this is how you often know about these values. Often, sometimes you realise they find you. You know, I, I could talk about my values, freedom and autonomy, why do you think I had a really bad time in corporate life? Freedom, autonomy, integrity, loyalty, and then inclusivity. And you might go, oh, but Heather, there's something about a family. Well, that comes into loyalty for me. So, Nick, what are some of your values? How have they, how have they kind of, you know, moved some of your life? Well, I think it's a, I think it's a great point. And, and Heather, sit, sitting here as someone else who started their career in a corporate world and, and now runs a sort of a, a growing marketing agency, I think we probably share similar values in that respect. And 
I, I think, I mean, firstly, thank you, because I, I, I really like how practical that is. And I'm a big believer in conversations like this, why people listen to the podcast, that those practical tips are fantastic. And I, I loved actually, I, it's something no one's ever suggested to me, but now you said it, it seems so obvious, go and get, you know, like you say, a ready-made sheet of what can, you know, these sort of common values and start to dig into them. And, and I guess inferring from what you've said, and it's something useful probably for our listeners as well on values, and I'll probably then take us back to firms, but you mentioned you need to pick what does resonate. And obviously there are other values, like you said, family orientated that for you is an inclusivity. But I guess there's a, for anyone listening, there's, there's also the acceptance that just because it's not on your, say, top four or top five, that doesn't mean it's not something you do. So to your point, integrity, honesty, like if you don't say honesty is one of your personal values, that doesn't mean you're a liar. And I think sometimes people misinterpret values as you have to have everything on that list. Yeah, and it's often that, you know, you've got to catch all, you know, integrity for me is about how I behave. It's about congruence. It's I've often stopped business relationships because something the other person has done that doesn't sit well with me. So, for example, I had a key relationship. They got sued because they were they were naughtily abusing somebody else's trademark in their Google ads. I can't recommend them anymore. And that's integrity to me. It's about doing the right thing. And I think this thing about values is you're never going to have a complete match with the values of your firm. Now, how does a firm get values? Well, a firm's values is an amalgamation of all the individual people's values. The partners at the top generally set the tone for the values of the firm and their behaviours determine what's acceptable, what is required. So they are very much Yes, the culture is about everybody's values, but actually it's the partners that dictate that. Now, you look at some consultancies will have this, we will do exactly what it takes in order to deliver the client. There's a real culture of a long hours culture, you know, about going that extra mile, doing what it takes. Now, if you've got a culture about family first, family orientated, that's not going to sit well with that type of job that routinely expects the 80, 90, 100 hour weeks, you know, the McKinsey type thing of we are the best, we're dedicated to the job, it's life. You know, I've heard partners say, I decided not to become a partner at this firm because I realised there'll be three people in my marriage. There'll be me, my wife, the firm. And this is why being really clear about your values, but also what you see is not what's written on that document that every consultancy says, but what are the real values of the firm? Do they really value personal freedom or does everybody have to toe the line? Do they really talk about flexibility or is it, well, you could be flexible as long as you're putting in 80 hours a week? You know, what is the real values? And if that doesn't align, you're always going to have this bit of friction that you're wondering what's not quite right. You might not be able to put your finger on it, but you'll be wondering what's not quite right. You'll never quite be motivated to be your best. There'll be something that's lacking. And that's why it's so important. There's a really strong alignment because when you step up to the partnership, you are going to be dictating the values of that firm and also saying you're happy with them. And if that isn't congruent with you, you ain't going to last for long. So I, I think it's a great point and, and a nice segue onto that conversation around is the firm right for you? And I, I'd i almost maybe to start this because we your point there is really key on values. You know, If you've not got a values fit, find that out and and there's an obvious decision. I imagine for some people listening, there's probably a more complex decision where values do fit, something else doesn't, or, and and I'm kind of teeing this up for you to tell me true, false, and, and what else otherwise is, you know, much like 
a sports team. I'm sports about the only analogies I can do. You'll find Heather. Like if you've got <laughs> your a, bail assumption. That's <laughs> a very big assumption. Um, yes. <laughs> I quite liked your cooking ones as well. I, I can do food as well if we want to do that. So, you know, but let's stick with sport for now. So you've got however many people on a team, you know, let's football, 11 people on a team. You could be the best goalkeeper, but if there is a slightly better goalkeeper, you're going to be number two, you know, or a striker. You kind of, you're going to be on the bench. And I guess in a consulting world, you know, take a, a specialism, I'll pick one out of the air. You know, let's say you're an operations or a customer experience consultant, it might just be there's only one space for a customer experience partner and you're not the one that was ordained or you're sort of just behind. And I guess as an opener, how do you encourage people to approach that? So maybe we've talked a lot about the values fit, which is key, but actually what are some of those other factors people should think about both to decide if it's right for them, but I guess the the other side of that, you know, this is this is a business relationship, whether they would be better or more successful moving firms as a positive step, not just a negative kind of moving away from and yeah, and you have to remember that consultancies sell reputation. They sell trust, they sell reputation. You might go, but no, we sell transformation. No, it's trust. There is nothing tangible that you're actually selling. There's nothing that you can build, put in a box, put on a shop shelf. And so it is about, so when you think about it, no client's going to want to be told, well, sorry, our best customer experience consultant is already booked out. So we've got you the second best. You know, you never have that conversation, do you? It just doesn't work out like that. And so it's really important to work out where you are in the pecking order of your firm, because you'll have business units, you'll have, you know, it might be, you might have it service line, then sector, whatever, you might have sector, you know, you're a consultancy, you've probably got six different structures in a matrix organization that makes sense to yourself. Everybody else looks at it and goes, that's complicated. But that's the way it's just kind of worked. The reality is, no, you're not going to make partner if you cannibalize somebody else's business. So if you're a direct replica of another partner, you're unlikely A, to get work to come to you and B, be made up to the partnership unless that partner is retiring you know, unless that partner is retiring. So you've got to find something that really makes you stand out that will justify, even if there is that other better customer experience consultant, that your bit of it, that you make your bit of it. And I mean, that was that was why, you know, it was just me in the early days. You know, we've got, I think, 14 people now around the world helping us. We've got a number of associates. We just had to bring in our person in the US because I kept losing business because I wasn't in the US. Damn these things. But, you know, when I was just starting out, there were loads of leadership people. There were loads of team effectiveness people. There were loads of business development people. And I was like, well, how do I have something that puts my core skill set I can go out to market with? Which is why I am the worldwide expert in what it takes to make partner. I'm the most generalist niche person or the most niche generalist I know. I do bits of business development. I do bits of career progression. I do bits of team stuff. I do bits of politics. I do bits of all of this. But I do it in a very key life stage of a consultant and accountant lawyer's career. And this is one of the ways that you come out of that. But you've also got to recognise what is in your firm's strategy. If you're maybe in an unsexy bit of the firm, how likely are the firm going to invest in a new partner in that area? You know, if your firm has decided it's going to go all in on pharma and biotech and that life sciences, that sort of thing, and you've been that person in professional services, 
how much time and energy is going to go into that sector team of professional services? How much more opportunities, marketing, referrals are going to be whizzing around that little area of biotech, pharma, life sciences type stuff? And you've got to look at the strategy. If your business case doesn't fit in where the firm wants to go and invest in, it's a lot harder sell. It's much, much harder to sell it. And you've always got to think of your bit as part of that. And, you know, if you are that professional services expert, there'll be a consultancy out there for you. You know, it's just just the way that nobody in retail, even though that was my first six years of my career, nobody in retail would touch me anymore. No, I, I think a really key point, Heather, and also good reassurance for, for our listeners. And, and like you say, actually, I like what you said around knowing actually where you are and being quite objective about are you the best in that practice are you not and and your niche point i mean we'll see how long we've got because i could talk with you all day on niche because i think you are you have hit on something that we say as a you know as a marketing agency to consulting firms but it's the same for individuals is you know unless you are going to be the best in the world at one thing really niche into what is that cross-section where you can be the best because there's a lot we often focus you know, we talk about the best chef or the best footballer or the best something else. But like you say, actually, if you really try and bring that niche across a matrix, suddenly you can be the best at something very niche. But as you know, for your business and for anyone listening, you can build a very strong consulting practice on something very niche. You know, and I think that is often people, you know, if you were imagining it as levels, often people will talk about that customer experience level, the operations level. You know, I always give the example, you could say you're an IT consultant, but actually if you're really good at, you know, that bit where you take the IT and give it to the, the normal people, the kind of user bit, make that your niche and you will instantly get more attention for it. So I think your personal example is actually a really good example for anyone listening to follow as well. Yeah. And I've, you know, because I know my areas so well, if you type in partner business case, you're going to come and land on me. If you type in how to make partner, you'll land on me. And I know this because I'm doing it all the time, by the way. <laughs> got to get my ego kicks in some way haven't i <laughs> no i i think yeah and having just done it i can confer that that is correct so your your digital marketing heather is very good um but i i think there's a really key point there is something you you highlighted in terms of practice areas and, and i'm adding this more just for my listenership because i get listeners from big firms and boutiques is i think the other element if i infer correctly from yourself is also different types of firms look for different things in partners and different skills. And so I've seen people who, who who didn't make partner at a boutique, make partner at a big firm and vice versa. And I suspect it comes back to your values and fit point, but that's probably something people should think about as well is you can still have huge success. You know, if you're at a, a PwC or an EY, you'll still have huge success as a partner at a boutique. But if you're not, never going to be the right mold and values for the big firm, why not consider those smaller ones and vice versa? Yeah. And, 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 you know, I've helped people go from boutiques mid-size to the big firms and, and vice versa. There is one thing that you can say about every single consultancy. They're all dysfunctional. It's just different degrees of dysfunction, you know. It, it, and I know you didn't think me I'd say that, but, you know, it, you, you've, you've got to remember if, you, if you're in consultancy, politics is what you do. That's politics within the client, politics within the firm. It all comes back to you've got bright, able people jostling to be seen as the expert, to be getting on the bench. You know, and there there are some cultures in some consultancy firms where it's dog eat dog. You know, I might say the word Deloitte in the UK, but I might not. You know, that's well known for its it's very much ethos if you're given a lot of personal responsibility, expected to take a lot of self-initiative, but you'll also get hung out to dry if you make a mistake. 
you know, it really is a dog eat dog world. But then you you look at you look at somewhere where EY and that's that you know that talks about going to market together and be more collaboratively. It, it is about if you're going to be at your best, you've got to be in an environment that encourages you to be at your best. If you're having to make too many compromises, you can't do that. And you know, for some people trading up to the bigger firms, for some people trading down, you know, there's a reason why boutique consultancy firms are very good business. There's a reason why they get paid lots of money for them by bigger firms because they bring a great business unit ready made ready cooked into something and actually you know i've worked with a number of those boutiques that suddenly gone oh we're now 50 plus people we need to get serious about our talent management what does it mean to make partner here uh, who needs a conversation helping them because they're telling us they're ready for partner, but they don't have a clue. Oh, yes, I, I do a number of those. Yeah, I, I guess I always give them the chocolate cake analogy. <laughs> I think that brings us quite nicely onto, because I'm, I'm keen to dive into, you know, if we jump quite a few steps in your 12, I think it brings us quite nicely to that kind of business case, you know, when, when someone is at that level. So we've, you know, we've gone through quite a lot of detail in how to understand if this is for you. We have actually dug into some of the kind of rational aspects of the business case to what you you talked about. But I'd be fascinated, the emotional side, because I, again, as consultants, and I always get them mixed up, you know, we're the analytical types, the right brain, and we're not the creative, we're not the left brain. You know, you mentioned crayons and marketing earlier, you know, I you know that's a myth, don't you? you what, the crayons or the market or the brains? Well, no, the, the crayons, definitely. It's not a myth, but the whole right brain, We're left brain. We're going to have to end the interview here, Heather. I'm, yeah, I'm now yeah. grossly offended. <laughs> <laughs> but no, the whole right brain, left brain, it doesn't hang up in neuroscience. It's a gross simplification of what happens, and both sides of your brain do both. <laughs> well, now now that you've shown I can only do crayons, let's, let's <laughs> stick with you know, my very crude oversimplification in neuroscience for a moment to introduce my question, which is, what is that emotional side? I think the rational we've got, you know, you've talked a lot about you've got to make that cake bigger, you've got to bring in business. And actually, we've talked about values, but the emotional side, let me understand more about actually what that is and why that plays such a big factor for anyone who's going for that business case. Yeah, absolutely. So the first is one of the things about a partnership is it's dysfunctional. Even even outside a consultant, it's dysfunctional. What sane business owner would set up a business where they have potentially, say, 30 player manager owners? Because that's what the partner role is. They're still doing the do. They're still managing, bringing in work, and they're still owning the business and leading it. What sane business owner in their right mind would set up a business structure like that? Too many competing priorities, too much going on. But that is the reality of a partnership structure is every single partner is a player, manager, owner. So as a result, we have a very collegiate environment. We have very collegiate decision-making, which is why you, Nicolai, why don't they just take a decision quickly? We know they need it. They know they need it. But why do they have to get 50-odd partners to say yes to this? This is the reality. You've got collegiate decision-making. So that's one of the reasons why this, this emotional business case is so important. You need somebody that is buys into collegiate decision-making. If they want to be too much of a lone wolf, they could destroy the whole strategy. Now, you could say with most consultancies that most partners ignore the firm's strategy, do their own thing. But we're not going there. But, you know, there is a nominal strategy. And actually, what most senior leadership teams in a firm is trying to do is corral their number of partners so they are acting together as a unit. They're not going to bring people that are already a lone wolf or already got a reputation for doing their own thing. You know, that's why I did not work as an employee. I am too autonomous. I'm too independent. I'm too entrepreneurial. My team call me an entrepreneurial squirrel. 
it kind of says it as it is. And so, oh, sorry, Heather, why a squirrel? Oh, because I can get easily distracted like a squirrel, you know, like dogs. Oh, there's a squirrel. <laughs> I am similar, as you can see from my question. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There's a reason you run your own business now. There's a reason you do what you do. So, yeah, this is this whole, you know, people have got to buy into that collegiate decision making. So that means so that's one of the emotional things. You know, if I'm looking at you, Nick, and go, Nick, you're brilliant at business development. I could see you really helping this, this and this. But you don't get along with so-and-so. You are going to be an arse with so-and-so. You will not abide by majority decisions. Already you failed in that member of the club bit. You know, you are entering a private members club. You know, we could go into the whole diversity and inclusion piece and why there's a lack of social mobility in most consultancies. And it often is because of that private members club. It's a lot, lot harder to get there if your face does not look similar. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people go, oh, but it's true. Uh, you look at a lot of, say, particularly the boutique consultancies have been set up by white men who are very good at what they do. And then they wonder why they have difficulty getting people of colour, non-Caucasian and women people up to the senior ranks in their partnership. It's because we often take decisions about who face fits and our, our brains are wired to basically go, if someone looks and sounds similar to me, they're safe. That you know, Neuroscience does that. And that's why you have to come over this whole subconscious bias, which is why we actually need to put extra help to help get the potential of people that don't naturally fit into that white male box. So, you know, it is about that member of the club. Now, if you think about it, Imagine you're a partner, you're about to do this major pitch and you introduce, and here's my fellow partner. You want to introduce them as if they are brilliant, don't you? You want to kind of go, yeah, I absolutely trust this person. You want to come, you know, when you're sitting there with a client, you want to go, you've got to speak to so-and-so. They are awesome. They, you know, absolutely trust them with my life. That's what partners want from each other because they are, they are bringing, you know, if you think about the consultancy model, you've got one partner, they're doing a project, it's about two thirds of the way through, they're now thinking about how do I sell on the next bit? What's the next bit of expertise? They are going to risk their reputation and by inviting another partner in to that conversation. If you don't trust them, if you don't think they're good, if you don't think they're credible, you ain't risking your relationship with that client. This is why this member of the club is so, so important, this emotional business case you know, not the emotional business case, this member of the club, the emotional personal case. A lot of people don't realise it, but when people are being made up to partner, there's something called a partnership agreement. That partnership agreement sets out how people are admitted to the partnership. There is almost always a vote. Now, you know, the senior equity, part, the full equity partners may have more voting rights than the fixed share partners, but we're not going there. But everybody has a vote. If you don't get enough people voting for you, you won't make partner. You know, that's about your name has got to be known by the other bits. Now, you might be the best thing in sliced bread in IT transformation for professional services firms. But if the future of work people over in life science haven't heard your name and then they see you on the ballot paper, what are they going to do? This is about this member of the club, that emotional thing. They've got to know you. They've got to trust you. They've got to think that you're going to be a good addition to the partnership. Otherwise, turkeys don't vote for Christmas. That is very true. And I think there's a lot in there, Heather, but I, I want to almost bring us back to something you said about halfway through, because I, I think there's a really rich discussion in that DNI piece, because I think in a good way, our industry is changing. Is it changing as fast enough as, as we, we want? I think everyone would agree it's, it's not. And there's lots of reasons for that. But I think you've, you've hit on one. And I guess I'll ask both questions and you can sort of explore them in the order that 
that works is you, you talked about sort of those turkeys for Christmas. There's there's a bit of a chicken and egg thing here. Of if a firm is run by white men and and you know let let's use what you said that club is then less likely to bring people who aren't white men in. There's a how do you get diversity in to start with? I guess then there's also a question for anyone listening of you know if you are not a white man is the answer that you have to pretend to be a white man, you know, so do you suddenly have to like rugby and wear a barber or actually how do you balance that tension of being your true self? You know, you mentioned religious faith, et cetera, bringing what is true to you and your values while still being able to get into the partnership. So there's there's two questions there and I think they link, but I'd be interested to get your perspective. So, yeah, I think the world is changing. So let's go back to those heady days of 1998. As a female with an engineering degree, I had firms falling over me to give me a job, to, to be a sponsored student. We are now not 30 years on, but we're kind of getting there. So by the time my daughter, who potentially will go into engineering or something that's product design goes in there, she will still have companies falling over her to put her you know, on whatever scheme because she's female and bright. So I look at it and I think I failed. You know, in the 30 years I've been in business, I've not changed it. But actually, we have moved on significantly. We've moved on massively, but we still have a problem. We still have basically a job that requires long hours that is not family friendly. So I think the first thing we have to acknowledge is as a profession, we are not as family friendly, flexible, and we never will be. And and we've just got to ask ourselves whether that's what we want, that's what we don't want. You know, I see some of the, the female consultancy partners, they typically, how do they get there? Because they're damn good. They're often significantly better than a white male peer. You know, white privilege, white male privilege does exist. And they normally have a major structure behind them in order to have a family. That might be a husband that has a less high powered job. It might be a house husband or it's a lot of money spent on a nanny. And we have to, we have to be aware of that. So I think there's some things that we have to take a long, hard look at ourselves and go as an organization. Are there things that are hard baked into what we do that we need to challenge? You know, do we have to always have the eight hour work working week? And I know I've, I've, I've exaggerated it, but can this be done on a three day working week? Can we do that? And, you know, actually, you may find that boutiques are far more flexible with that. Or you may find actually the big firms are far more flexible with that because they've got more cover. So there is more ways of whatever. I've had people turn around to me and go, I'm female, brown. Does that mean I'm more like I should put that on my business case for partner? Because the partnership wants to encourage more diversity. The answer is no. No firm is going to take you unless you have a watertight personal case and business case. If you've got that, it's a nice extra bonus that you come, you would add in diversity. So what can firms do to start to build diversity? Well, you've got to take a long, hard look at how you're recruiting. Because if you're going to the St. Paul's, you're going to the Russell Groups, the Oxbridge, if you're going to those St. Paul's and you're asking people to have a 2-1, you're already stopping yourself from looking in more diverse talent pools. Can you can you start to do a degree apprenticeship scheme? Now both my two children are good enough for Oxbridge. I'll be I'm gonna be I would be disappointed they won't want to go there as I'm that's my you know that's where I went to. But actually they both said to me 
no, we want to do degree apprenticeships because we don't want to end up with 80 grand of debt. We want to be at the age of 22, having a degree three years ahead of our peers without debt. So they're pretty screwed on, my two kids. But actually, so the first thing you've got to look at is the recruitment side of things. You know, are we actively putting in barriers to stop these people coming in? The second thing is people want, I'll just go back to some of those barriers. So one of the things that can really help is when you get a CV in, take out the photo, take out the name, take out anything that could identify their cultural background, and then look at the CV. Because you'll be surprised how much subconscious bias we have. You know, maybe a Nigerian sounding name. Oh, do they have a work permit? Strip out those and then evaluate the CV. And this is what I mean by there's so many structural things in that are unconsciously supporting our ability to get in people like ourselves. Um, Then it is about actually looking where you do. So you can start to influence people coming in at the ground level. Then look at can you get some lateral hires in? Now, the thing is that when people are outside of the normal mould, they need greater advocacy for their career. I'm not talking here about positive discrimination. Oh, she's she's only got the job because she's a black, pretty female. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about proper advocacy and allyship. So how are you making sure that those people that you want and want to get greater diversity that have the potential are mentored by some of the very senior people in the firm? You know, how are you making sure that you're getting, how are you maybe doing some lateral hires that are outside of your normal mould, but share similar values? I then look at some of the unwritten rules of how your practice does things. And let's take the Friday afternoon drinks. Yeah, it's part of consultancy, isn't it? You know, the drinks trolley comes around. But have you thought about it? What about your Muslim members of staff? You are actively pushing them out so where have you got stuff that that is maybe deep set in your culture that you need to actually think about how do we make this more inclusive because it's easy once you've got some role models within the partnership that are non-white males because you've then got you've then basically shown that it's possible when people can see it they realize that their potential can get there but it's you know what is your high performing females program what is your bme network doing you know, you may have to think about, you know, some strategic lateral hires, but also look at your client base. You may notice that suddenly your client base is becoming more diverse. If you aren't bringing in diversity into the ranks, your clients will be starting to exclude you because you don't look like them. If you are turning up as white and male, you are leaving business on the table, you know. And I know consultancies work all over the world, but they particularly, you know, I, I, I see a lot of people in finance with what I do. This is not, you know, we have within within accountancy, so the finance part of an organisation, which is often where a lot of digital transformation, finance transformation, people that sign off the work, you have basically double the amount of Asian representative in the finance industry than in the normal population in the UK. You get a lot of non-white people going into finance. Interesting. I think just hearing, like you say, it starts very early on and more in the bottom means more at the top. And I I think what you you highlighted around, it only takes one role model to to start to build that out, I think is really, really powerful. And and I'm going to pick up in a moment on some of the structural elements you say, because I 
I want to talk about that in the context of smaller firms, because I think there's a really interesting conversation there. But just to touch on then, you mentioned around if you're an individual, you know, you mentioned sort of someone who's a brown female, you said, don't put that on your business case. How can someone be the change they want to see in a firm, in a consulting firm, you know, and I, I'm thinking particularly where a firm, let's take the boutiques where they may not have the structures, you know, they they may not have a, a finance function where there there are, you know, you, as you mentioned, sort of more Asian colleagues, they may not have a BAME network, sort of what, what can someone be doing to start to be that change to also support their own journey to partnership? Or is it just do the same as your white male colleagues, and that will be seen? How, how should they approach that? I don't think it's about do the same. So if you look at part of my character, you, you've you spoken to me, you've listened to me now for quite a long time. I'm straight talking. I play with a straight bat. I'm straight talking. I say it as it is. If I was male, this would be seen as very desirable traits, wouldn't they? These are true leadership qualities. As a female, this is very countercultural. As a female, I'm seen as blunt, hard and aggressive. And I think the first thing that starts is just to be aware of what are the expectations of you? Where do you need to play to them? And where have you got a lot more latitude to be your authentic self? You know, I have to spend a lot, lot longer putting the relationship building behaviours around to not get labelled as aggressive, scary, blunt. But if I was male, it would just be, that's Heather, you know. Brilliant. She tells you as it is. You always know where you are with her. That's excellent. It'd be seen as very different. So you've got to remember that. So you take the you take the African Caribbean. You know, often that figure is seen as overtly sexualized. I'm not saying that people should change who they are, what they are, but it's to be aware and not play into some of those stereotypes if you could afford not to. Now you've always got to be yourself, but you know, you've got to be aware of this. So I think it's important. The next thing is. It was really interesting. I once read the appraisal forms of 10 people that were seen as the next partners in a law firm. And there was a distinct difference between the male appraisal forms and the female appraisal forms. The male appraisal forms were basically, here are my results. Here's why I'm great. I'm ready for partner. The female appraisal forms were, here's how I've been a great team player. Here's how I've helped others. A lot more waffle, a lot more whatever. So what I'm actually saying is take a tip out of, you know, the people that you're not and look to become more well-rounded. But I'd also say seek out a senior mentor in your firm and actually ask, how do I come across? How do I still be authentic, but don't start to jar the culture? You know, I'm, I'm somebody that's got sacked twice, made redundant twice before I set up my own business, never promoted. You know, there's a reason I'm at home doing what I do. But actually, it is about being really sensitive to what the culture is. You know, I remember my days working for Procter & Gamble and, you know, they, would all, they they literally had to do a big change thing and it was all about being straight talking because it, they, they didn't do it. You know, they, they talk, had this phrase, let's put the moose on the table, you know, an American firm. I did not fit in there because I was straight talking. I couldn't understand why we'd spend 10 minutes of a 30-minute meeting just finding out how each other's are, you know. So you, you've got to, you've got to, there comes a point where you go, if I am to fit in in this firm, am I too far away from my authentic self? And actually, I'd always go and look for the advocacy, the allyship, who, particularly if you're sitting there, who has really enjoyed having you on their jobs? 
Who are you first picked for? Those are the ones that you need to start talking to about going, right, how do I play this political game? How do I make sure that my achievements are being shouted about? How do I find these sponsors for my career, more than just my sponsoring partner, the people that will fight for me around the table, the people that will go, no, that's that's not Heather being shouty. That's just, look, if that was a man saying that, you, you wouldn't think anything of it. You know, who are those people? And build those advocates, those sponsors, those mentors. And it's it's about building that for yourself. So you've got, when the partners go and have those conversations, that your name is keep, keeps getting said for the right reasons. I think some brilliant points in there, Heather. I can also tell we we could we could spend the whole day, you know, almost into the afternoon. I think we could spend the whole day on this topic. I love the passion and, and I do love the straight talking. It's, it's something our industry is not known for and actually is is quite refreshing and I, I think really helps people as well. I, we talked about it to an extent in sort of understanding the values, but sometimes I think that must be quite hard in knowing where you are for partnership if people aren't being straight with you and, you know, someone's saying, yeah, you're great, but they're, they're not giving you that truth. So I I think there's some some really powerful points in there. I and mean, that allyship, but all, you know, also that find the people who do like you. It sounds so obvious when you say it, but so often we can look outside of the immediate circle of influence and actually, sorry, go on. And, and, and this, you never get insightful feedback. And I just wanted to pick that one up is you're not, not getting insightful feedback because people are not giving it to you. It's often because people can't put their finger on it. So much of what we talked about being for ready for partner is a feeling. It's about the real nuances of are you doing the right thing, saying the right thing? You know, what makes the difference between a high performing managing consultant and a high performing management consultant that's demonstrating they're ready for partner? It's often really subtle things. Yeah, there's the big thing about going out and winning work, but it's often really subtle things. And partners don't have the skill set to identify those and articulate them. You go to maybe the boutique firms they've not got those you know detailed competency frameworks these are often consultants that set up themselves and found themselves suddenly with 200 people working for them they've never been you know a proper line manager they've always managed through the timesheet and billable time targets and it's not because people don't want to give it's because they don't know what is missing and they can't articulate they know instinctively what it takes to make partner but they can't translate that to the person standing in front of them they also don't want to really annoy one of their fee earners who's really important to the firm and go this is why it's not working so you'll get a whole lot of platitudes and you know that's why when we get people to do the partnership readiness assessment they suddenly go that's what's missing and they could get the clarity of that's what's not happening. And it often starts at the mindset. I think a really good point. And, and both that not exactly knowing that feeling, because I think that is so true. And and sometimes also, like you say, there is a vested interest in your know, hairdresser rarely says they've given you a bad haircut. And I think it's a similar uh, similar thing that you mentioned. I conscious of times so I want to move on to something else you said, but just so I've got it in case it's used for our listeners, that partnership readiness assessment, is that something that's available on your website is that a paid yeah, for tool if you, go, if you go to howtomakepartner.com you'll see it straight on the first put your details in it's free it'll take people 15 minutes to do you know we get a lot of consultants doing it and i'll tell you now it will take 15 minutes this is not a pop quiz this is not a oh i've seen this on buzzfeed you know this is 80 plus questions it will really make you think it takes on average 15 minutes to do what you'll then get is a full report outlining where you've got gaps against each of the 12 indicators and then the next steps for you of how do you then address those gaps. People come to us and go, 
they go, wow, this has given me the clarity that my firm hasn't got. Or they go, wow, this has reminded me that actually what the partners were saying was real. Fantastic. Well, I'll, um, we'll obviously put a link to your website in the show notes so people, anyone listening can go there, find it on the homepage. I think that'd be really valuable. And you mentioned, we've talked a lot about structures of, of partnership and that partnership appraisal, that sort of partnership promotion process. And I, as sort of the final area for today, and, and it's it's very much focused on, I guess, our listeners outside of the big four, because like you said, the, the big firms, you know, the likes of PwC, et cetera, the likes of BDO where you were, they've got HR functions that do huge processes yeah, around yeah, it, the very Accenture's, mature. The, the PAs, the Boston Consulting, yeah, they've got big stuff. Exactly. What I'm thinking about then is, you know, for our listeners where they are running, you mentioned 200, might be 50, might be 20, 10, and they're thinking, well, this sounds amazing, Heather, but I... Where do I start? You know, how can someone who's running a, a boutique firm actually start to build a partner development track or a partner process that does everything you've highlighted, is fair to their teams, fair to the business? And I guess, you know, where do they start? What's the thing they should be doing to get that most benefit for that least input? So the first thing is the partners have got to agree they want to do this. I know it goes without saying, but, you know, you've got 20 partners, five partners, they're all decision makers. So you've actually got to go strategically, is this worth us spending our time on it? Because there's no point doing it if it's not a strategic imperative. The next thing is to actually go to the strategy of your firm. Now, consultancies will have their playbooks. If you're a consultant, you don't have your war plan, your game plan, your all of this sort of stuff, then you're not then you're not a consultancy. Go home. You know, you'll have that strategy. So the first thing to look at is in that strategy, what skill set, what abilities, what behaviors are needed by your partners in order to deliver that. You know, you'll have something that says manufacturing is going to be hot in five years' time. So If you don't have anybody in manufacturing, who's got the skill set to kick open doors? Because you won't have a client base there if you don't know anybody deep in manufacturing. So who's got the skill set to kick open doors? Who's got the skill set to take their transferable stuff from, say, retail into manufacturing? Because it's still stock, isn't it, roughly? I, I love professional services. I sell time. I don't do this kind of stuff where you've got physical product. But, you know, so... You look at your strategy and go, well, where do we need a business case for partner in order to achieve that? You know, if we think that digital, let's go, oh, there's so many. I've realized that everything in consultancy is about transformation. Uh, You know, let's go. Let's go future work. If we think the future work is going to be really hot, we're going to have a business case for instead of our one future work. We want three future work partners because we're going to have a 20 million pound business in future work. So we're going to need three partners there. So actually, what are those three partners going to need? What's that skill set needed? What are the standards that we want them to get? So build that and then start looking at, right, okay, who in our current skill set, who is there that if we spend some time helping them develop, you know, let's go back to those 12 indicators, mindset, direction, plan, support team, delegation, help them with those five first so they've got time to actually start going out, building their brand, winning work in the future of work, because that's our own, we've identified. And that, you know, you go back to those 12 key indicators because those are your structure to then help people develop into that. But you then need to look at, well, if we're if we're considering who's right and ready for it, you want to have some kind of, these are the thresholds. Now, 
Your consultants will want to know, do I need a £2 million business or a £2.5 million business? Do I need that within two years, three years? They'll want that level of certainty. You won't be able to give them that level of certainty. That's just how it is. But you're going to need to kind of go, well, actually, what are our minimum standards? What are our minimum things that people need to do? And then how do we test that out in the process? We kind of say use the partnership admissions process as a due diligence process. So a lot of people will do some profiling. You know, I'm, I'm a little bit ambivalent about profiling. You know, I'd, I'd be looking at their, their evidence. I'd be looking at them pitching their business case. I'd be looking at their numbers. I want to see it written down. I want to see it pitched. And I want I want to know as, a, as an organisation that we're proud to call them a partner. And at that point, they're ready. I think a really good overview, Heather. And I always like to ask this just because it, t- it tends to flush out sort of other useful topics is that gives a really good overview of what people should do. The answer to this might just be the opposite of that. But for the boutique firms where maybe you have worked with them to help them shape that process or you, you know, you've spoken to partners who've been through that, are there any common mistakes in that kind of partnerships progression approach that boutiques make? Any common pitfalls you've seen? And if so, what are they and what should people be looking out for as they build what you've described? Yeah, the biggest one I see is knee-jerk admission to partnership. And what do I mean by that? It's where people get admitted to the partnership before they're ready. Why do they do that? It's because it's like, well, so and has been with us so many years. It would be helpful if they had partner on their business card for when we're introducing them to others. And we're worried that they might leave if we don't give them that element of step up. And actually, there are people rapidly coming up behind them. It's going to be embarrassing if someone else makes it first. We need to make them partner. And actually, there isn't that deep thought about are they the right person for partner? What is the right person? And that is often, the, if you were to ask me for the one single mistake, I am often brought in to help a floundering new partner. And I'm like, you've got to feed yourself in 18 months. Where's your pipeline? What's going on with your pipeline? Where's your two million pound of stuff coming through? And ultimately what happens is you then start to get this dead wood at a junior partner level that's not going anywhere, which then stops other people coming up. It puts, you then get the bright, able people going, well, so has made it. They're not doing any of their own billing. They're still getting it fed to them. Why can't I make partner? You know, and, and this is this is the big thing is don't make that knee-jerk reaction. You wouldn't just give equity away to anyone, so don't do it. I think it's such a good point, and it's the obvious one. Now you've said it, I imagine it's the hardest thing to stop when you do it. But the impact, like you've said, of that dead wood and you know, the long-term impact on your firm, I, I can imagine is massive. And you, yeah, you will see Kills this in the, the firm. Exactly, and you'll see this in the work you do. And I, I think the last question on on this bit, Heather, and we we just because of the sort of resource you shared around that questionnaire for people thinking about making partner for, for any boutiques who are you know talking about building that structure for themselves are there any resources guides anywhere you would point them to as a framework to start to build this anything that they could be using yeah and and i know it sounds like i'm self-promoting but i really did write the only books on this subject so i'd always get a copy of how to make partners to have a life because that's probably the best one that takes people from new into consulting right up to managing partner and you can clearly see what what are the differences what are the skill sets needed and i think that's always worth a read the next thing i pick up is a copy for poise for partnership because it is the only one that codifies are these people ready now I would not say take the partnership readiness assessment and bolt it into your process because this is about getting people to self-evaluate. And if they think that it's linked to, well, I get it, won't I get it? 
they ain't going to answer it seriously. But actually, we've we've taken the partnership readiness assessment, we've white labelled it and, and slightly adjusted it so that individual firms can use it as a dialogue tool to help individuals with where they're at and what they're doing. It's a really good dialogue tool. I would then start to use that 12 indicator framework to kind of go, right, within our partnership admissions process, do we have our standard template for a business case that we want to know about? Have we set up these parts of the whatever? You know, are we asking them about these bits and pieces that demonstrate that they can grow a business within a business? Because that's what we're asking them to do. So I'd say always get a copy for Poise for Partnership. We can, um, you know, we can tailor the partnership readiness assessment so they could be a nice little logo bound pretty report for people yeah that could be done we've done that for other firms to do that uh consultancy as well as law firms actually and i'd, I'd start with those two because get it from me i'm doing a lot of reading around the internet but uh, for search engine reasons for the work we do because we are based on digital marketing there's a lot of crap written out there very true about digital marketing as well, as I uh, often <laughs> see. But I, th- I think some great resources um, and we'll put links to, obviously your website will put links to both of those books in the show notes as well. So anyone who's listening to this, go there straight to your website or Amazon can get their copies as well. Heather, this has been fantastic and, and everything I hope for, if I'm honest. I think we've got so much great advice on a topic that so many people want to know about, but so few people are out there to tell them about, as you made the point, you know, I I think you are one of one in terms of your specialism and and the advice you give. So thank you for that. I have two last questions that I ask every one of my guests. And and to your point about being straight talking and having, you know, some strong views in this area, I think we're going to get some great closing answers. So the first one is, is books. And, And obviously, we've talked about your own books, and people should read those. Are there any other books? Or what is the book that has either had the biggest impact on you, or you find yourself gifting to others most often? And why is that? The book that I recommend, and actually I think it's brilliant for any consultancy, is the book Switch by Dan and Chip Heath. So the reason why I'm saying that is what they've done is they've taken standard traditional leadership theory around change. So we're thinking about the Cotter stuff, which everybody that's listening to this podcast is Consultancy 101. And what they do and have done is they've then put the neuroscience behind it. So, you know, there's a reason why change is hard. There's a reason why change doesn't happen. And let's think about what we as a consultant are doing is our day job is about enabling sustainable change in organisations. And I really love the the methodology and framework of how they've used the latest thinking in neuroscience and updated traditional thinking around change. And we talk about it all the time. And I recommend that book all the time to our clients and members when they're when they're thinking, well, how do I get them to do that new practice management system? I'm like, well, you've coded it in there. So it's not it's not a rational problem. It's an emotional problem, right? So how are we motivating the elephant? Let's think about stories. Let's demonstrate the impact. Let's see how the emotions are getting into it. And I have to say, if I if I'm not allowed to include my own books, which I think is unfair, it would be the the switch book by Dan and Chip Heath. That's probably the one I refer to most of any of my clients. And actually, the fact that we are focusing on consultants rather than lawyers and accountants, it's probably, if you're to read one book this year, it should be that book. It will revolutionise how you approach what you're doing 
within your clients' organisations. Fantastic. Well, I think a brilliant recommendation. And, and to be fair to you, Heather, I, I, I will couch your answer is if you read one book after our listeners have read both <laughs> of yours, because it, it's a little unfair of me, but the, the joy of it being my show is I can set the rules. So thank you <laughs> yeah, for I know, that. It's like, it's like, you mean I can't mention six of my books? <laughs> well, we'll put links to all of yours in the show notes and, and switch. I just think it's always interesting. You know, I, I, someone I listened to once said you shouldn't ask for the top recommendation you should ask for the third because sometimes you get some interesting things you wouldn't and I think that's what we've just got with that book I think really interesting book and something people can take away to think about so thank you for that and then the last question and interestingly this will give you a chance to to give advice to people we haven't talked about as well because I asked the same question to all guests and the question is you've got three people in front of you you've got someone who's just entering their consulting career so right out of university or, you know, just off an apprenticeship scheme to, to your point, they're just starting out. You've got someone who is in that kind of middle five to seven years. I'd know them as a manager. They've they've done enough to have options, but they're not yet in, I guess, where we talked about with your target clients. So they're not quite looking at partnership just yet. And then the final is, you know, the people you speak to day in, day out, they're just approaching partner. They're kind of on that cusp, that director level. And this might be a recap of some of the things you've said. It might be new advice. But the question is, what one piece of advice would you give to each of them? So with the with the, the new into consulting, the first thing is be curious. You're going to be given a lot of mundane tasks. Always find out the bigger picture. Always find out how they fit in. Always be looking for how can I take initiative? How can I take stuff off the one person ahead of me? How can you be seen as reliable and credible? So for this, this means do what you say you're going to do. I know it's cliched but under promise and over deliver, but also turn up on time. And by on time, I mean five minutes early for online meetings, because those five minutes have saved me so many times with the whole, why can't I, why can't I log in here? Why do I have to upload that piece of new kit? Why is the client using a stupid online video call platform that is not playing with my Mac, my iPad, my whatever? It gives you, you know, turn up on time should be five minutes early in your book, like the military. So be curious, be trustworthy, and look to be that reliable team member. Now, one, four to five years in, my key thing is about, it's not about you doing the work anymore. It is now about how you can delegate more down to others and how you can build relationships with clients and your network. You know, how can you build a, a particular brand? How can you be known for something? How can you start going from a great technician into a rainmaker? The one approaching partnership is it's not about being a great senior fee earner. It's about being a great partner. So how are you demonstrating that you built business within a business? How are you building that support team around you? How are you demonstrating and talking to your partners about these are the opportunities? How are you changing the conversation around you so you're acting, thinking and feeling like a partner? Some brilliant advice in there, Heather. Thank you for that. And thank you for this. I've, I've really enjoyed it. And the last question to ask, and it's, it's not so much of a question, but more for anyone who wants to find out more about everything we've spoken about, wants to get in touch with yourself, wants to find one of your books, where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? So my email address, it's a very easy one to remember, Heather at heathertownsend.co.uk no spaces no you know no nothing between it's heathertownsend.co.uk it'll be in the show notes or jump onto our website howtomakepartner.com 
And if you go to Hard to Make Partner, you can jump on and you can trial out the partnership readiness assessment. We, we do work and I've had a lot of inquiries actually in the last three months from what I would call consultancies between 50 to 500 people that are now needing to get serious about what does it take to become a senior fee earner to a partner? What should be in that program to develop people? What should be in our partnership admissions process? You know, I've literally had three inquiries in the last three months along those lines. So get in touch. Very happy to speak. We love talking about this stuff. Fantastic, Heather. Well, I've loved this as well. Thank you very much for giving your time for the show. And all that's left to say is all the best for the rest of your week. Thank you very much. And and once again, it's been an honour to be asked. I feel very proud to be able to talk about my favourite subject for an hour and a half. (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you, Heather. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's Nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.